Hello and welcome to another edition of the Leaders Performance Podcast, another insight into the world of elite performance in sport and beyond. My name is John Porch. I'm the lead writer here at Leaders. For the latest pod, I'm talking neuroscience with renowned sports science and technology writer Amit Katwala, who has written for The Economist and The Times, amongst others, and was the senior writer at Sport Magazine for six years. Amit has interviewed a wealth of athletes during his career. Some that stick out in my mind include Formula One world champion Lewis Hamilton, Manchester City captain Vincent Company, and the former Manchester United midfielder Paul Scholes. These elite performers are distinguished from the rest by their anticipation and decision-making skills, both of which can be trained, as Amit highlights in his 2016 book, The Athletic Brain, How Neuroscience is Revolutionising Sports and Can Help You Perform Better. And so we were delighted to welcome him to Leaders Towers to delve into some of the topics covered. He begins by telling us that neuroscience in sport remains at a Wild West stage, as it's not necessarily embedded in training programmes yet, but those who are open to the possibilities are reaping the benefits with their athletes already. He names the Boston Red Sox and the German Bundesliga side Hoffenheim as two teams actively invested in technology to help develop their players' cognitive skills. Yet he also emphasises that programmes need not be expensive, as demonstrated by FC Barcelona's Rondo training drills. The important thing is that coaches understand which cognitive skills are most valuable in their sport, perhaps by studying the best proponents of that sport and adapting their training programmes accordingly. At the end of the day, talent is important, but it's also just a function of experience. Train the brain and everything else will be better place to follow. We also talk about finding flow and touch on the reasons why athletes choke at crucial moments. If this is the first time you've come to the Leaders Performance Podcast, then please do go back and check out our archives. Amongst the burgeoning list of interviews and archive sessions is our behind-the-scenes look at November's Leader Sport Performance Summit in London, which is brought to you by our editorial director, James Emmett. Plenty of interesting tidbits in there, so please check that out. And remember that the session videos themselves are available to all Leaders Performance Institute members at leadersinsport.com forward slash performance. This will be the last pod of 2017, but please do keep checking the website over the festive period as you will still be able to access our daily doses of performance insight. So it's Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year from me, and enjoy this chat with Amit Katwala. Amit, welcome to Wimbledon and the Leaders Performance Podcast. Thank you for having me. Now I wanted to talk to you, of course, about your book, The Athletic Brain, How Neuroscience is Revolutionising Sport and Can Help You Perform Better. Perhaps you can begin by outlining some of the ways in which neuroscience is revolutionising sport. Well, I think we're seeing uh, a move. So, you know, in the 90s, we had nutrition with Arsene Wenger and people like that. And then a sort of growing realisation that sports psychology was really quite important. And I now think teams are looking towards the next stage, which is, which is neuroscience, by which I mean the science of how the brain works and how we can tap into that. So whereas sports psychology is, is maybe more about feelings and thoughts and abstract things like that, this is... This is, uh, these are training techniques and tools that are kind of rooted in the biology of the brain. So you see uh, training programs that are designed to take advantage of the way the brain learns new skills. There are new devices, new wearables that are kind of tapping into things like vision processing or uh, you know, the way that neurotransmitters work to try and influence how quickly people learn new skills or how well they can perform under pressure. Um, and there are, there are dozens of examples of teams who are kind of starting out, we're probably at the start of the journey still. I think we're probably still in the sort of wild west days where people are kind of willing to try new things, but maybe they're not quite embedded in into the training in the way that nutrition is now kind of a completely 
you know, every team's got a nutritionist and every team is kind of watching what they what they eat. Maybe neuroscience is kind of a little bit behind that at the moment, but I, I think in the next five or ten years this is going to be a big area of change in sport. Okay, so what exactly is happening at the moment and who are some of the major names involved in that space? So some of the leaders are... are People like AC Milan are really far ahead with it, and, and in the States, uh, a lot of baseball teams are, uh, and American football teams, I think because they've just got resources to to throw at these things, are are quite far forward as well. So people like the Boston Red Sox are really invested in, in various things. So they use this, um, they their players do neural, neural training every, every week. So as part of their training routine, they've got to basically practice... Um, you know, play these. They're, they're basically computer games, but the computer games are kind of designed to help uh, them identify pitches more quickly uh, when they actually come to a game scenario. So they'll sit in front of a computer and they'll they'll watch, you know, clips of, of thousands of pitches coming towards them, and then they have to make a judgment by pressing an arrow on the keyboard whether you know the pitch is going to be a straight pitch or a curved ball or a slider. Uh, various different types of ways the ball can break as it comes towards you at the plate. Um, and the idea behind this, and there are other tools, so um, GSK have got a human performance lab out in Brentford where they've got um, a big touch screen, and it's a very similar kind of thing, so that it's for rugby. So uh, you have a video footage of a player coming towards you, uh, you're the tackler, the player towards you got the ball, and you've got to try and determine which way they're going to go uh, and tap left or right if you think they're going to you know, dummy to the left or to the right. Um, and the basic premise is always the same. The idea is to make training more efficient. So you find out what uh, what's important. You know what what stimuli does the brain need to learn a new skill, and then you make it more efficient so you can cram in more experience into a shorter period of time by using new technology, for example. Um, and that's just one example. There are there are loads of others, um, other cases of, of kind of speeding up training by finding out what the brain needs to do to learn and then just making it more efficient by, by cramming it into a shorter space of time. And then on top of that, there are other ways of making the brain learn more quickly using, uh, you know, things like, uh, uh, you know, like magnetic stimulation. So passing a coil, electric coil over the brain can, it's thought, kind of help speed up learning or by, even by designing training in such a way that you train at a particular time of day or you train in a particular fashion, you can really, really have an impact on how quickly people learn. So you've mentioned some of those techniques. You've yeah. mentioned that it's a bit of a Wild West space. Mm. So with some of that in mind, I wanted to ask you, um, what was the genesis of the athletic brain and how did it start coming together? So I, I studied uh, experimental psychology at university uh, and then promptly stopped doing psychology and became a sports journalist. Um, so, you know, in sort of years of interviewing sort of world-class athletes, I kind of... I guess the questions I was, was always interested in was kind of what what made them different, you know, what made them stand out. And actually, a lot of the time, it's not really about, you know, their physical gifts or anything like that. It's about their brain. It's about their decision-making. You know, why is Lionel Messi the best player in the world when the second best player in the world is, you know, two foot taller than him and faster and stronger? You know, it's because he's got something, you know, and I think that, you know, and I don't really believe in this idea of sort of you know God-given talent or anything like that. I think it's it's down to something in his environment when he was young that you know his brain is he's quicker at making decisions. You know, you can see things before other people see them, and I think that's really interesting. And I kind of decided to combine, you know, my background in psychology with you know some of the experience I had talking to athletes. Um, so for the book, I talked to people like Wayne Rooney, Lewis Hamilton. I talked to you know Mark Webber, Paul Scholes, all these people that are kind of you know even Paul Scholes in particular, right, is kind of famed for 
having a great football brain. You know, he's you know short, scrawny, asthmatic kid. Really shouldn't you know by any sort of sensible logic be one of the best midfield players of his generation. But because of his brain and because of the, his ability to kind of see the play around him and make great decisions really quickly, he you know became you know what what many people now looking back kind of see as you know one of England's best best footballers over the last sort of ten or fifteen years. Um, so yeah, I kind of wanted to combine those two things and, and that was really the idea behind the book. And then as I looked into, you know, some of the research around neuroscience and sport, I found all these people that were doing, you know, trying to push the boundaries and developing these new technologies and new tools and, you know, kind of really compelling stories. And that's kind of where the book, you know, came from. And hopefully that's the kind of ground it covers. So having covered that ground in the book, um, why do footballers or athletes in general stand out because of their brains? Um, why are elite athletes different to the rest of us, say? So there's really two things. There's two, there's two aspects to it. The first is anticipation. The second is high-speed decision-making. So, and then there's also a bit around kind of performing under pressure as well, which I think is really important. But, but anticipation, first off. So um, elite athletes are able to predict what's going to happen quicker than non-athletes. So there's a bunch of studies in cricket, for example, where actually, you know, if you're, if you're facing a fast bowler like you know, Glenn McGrath or someone like that, or, or a more current example than Glenn McGrath, but um, Jimmy Anderson, um, and, you know, actually, mathematically, it doesn't make sense because the ball's coming towards you so quickly that you physically don't have time to... You don't have time to see where it's going and then make the movement. So actually, elite batsmen start, making, start playing their shot before the ball has left the bowler's hand which is amazing, think about it, because they have to decide where the ball's going to go based purely on the body position of the bowler running towards them. And that's what we mean by anticipation. So, you know, if you put me in the nets against Jimmy Anderson, I you know, wouldn't have any idea what to do. The ball would be past me before I could even react. But, you know, an elite batsman knows, or at least has an idea, can make an educated guess as to where the ball is going to go purely based on, you know, Anderson's shoulder position or his hand position or, or something about his run-up. And that comes from, you know, thousands of hours of experience. When we talk about the, you know, 10,000 hour rule, for example, um, which has been, you know, explained at length by Malcolm Gladwell, Matthew Side, etc. What we're really talking about is kind of building up the experience so that your brain knows, you know, in every scenario what this particular body position means in terms of where the ball's going to end up. And it's not a conscious thing. It's, it's sort of a, you know, subconscious you know, you know, a batsman isn't necessarily aware that you know a deviation of like five degrees to the left in the position of the the arm as it comes around is going to mean a different type of delivery. But you know, at some po- some level, their brain kind of knows that. And I think it was a really interesting uh, example of this with uh, with Cristiano Ronaldo. So there's a, a series of uh, promotional videos for uh, a petrol company or something that Ronaldo filmed with some sports psychologists. And um, so basically, what they did was they got the um, they got this big warehouse and a goal and up some astro turf and they were crossing the ball into Ronaldo and he had to just finish into the empty net but they basically started turning off the lights so pitching the, the warehouse into complete darkness earlier and earlier and earlier so you know first they did it when the ball was in midair and the lights would completely go out but Ronaldo could still score then they did it you know just after the ball was crossed and he could still score and then they did it before the ball was even crossed the lights would go out and then he was still able somehow to in, in complete darkness to you know, work out where the ball was going and also do it accurately enough that he could still finish, um, which is incredible. So that's anticipation. Uh, then the second thing is high-speed decision-making. So athletes are better at making decisions and better at making the right decisions more quickly. Um, 
and often they do it kind of uh, in a sort of snap, instant way. But they, they, you know, they, if you're under pressure and you've got to choose between three different options, you might just make a gut, you know, kind of instinctual call, right? But athletes, when athletes when they do that, they tend to be right more often than non-athletes. They tend to make the right call more quick, more often, more quickly. Uh, and again, that comes down to ten thousand hours of experience or thousands of hours of experience. You know, you, you learn over time what to do in every scenario. Um, and I guess some of the brain training tools we're talking about are, you know, figuring out ways of giving athletes more experience of making decisions more quickly so that they can have a bigger pool of experience to draw upon, um, which is really interesting. There's a really uh, interesting parallel with um, online poker, for example. So, you know, uh, if you look at the pool of like who's really good at poker at the moment right in, in, in the world like 10 20 years ago it was kind of you know 50 60 year old men who'd been playing it for years now because the kids that play online can see thousands and thousands of hands in a day they are quickly catching up and kind of overtaking it so that kind of the people at the top of that game are sort of all you know 22 year old kind of like college graduates who happen to have a gift for maths and kind of have just been able to hammer and build up so much experience in such a short space of time so yeah that, that's probably quite a rambling answer but those are the two yeah, those are the two main things i say anticipation and high-speed decision making are the two and things that make athletes different does that come under the umbrella of executive function um sort of not really executive executive function is things more like it, it's kind of a, a portfolio of skills so it's things like working memory which is um how many things you can hold in your in your brain at one time so um there's a, a rule that says it, it's seven plus or minus two. So most people can, can store between five and nine items in their working memory at any one time. So that could be, you know, trying to remember like a number uh, or a phone number, for example, or it could be, you know, kind of tracking the position of objects around you. Um, so it's, it's, things like, it's things like working memory and also things like how quickly you can switch between tasks. So if you are asked to do one task and then switch to another task quickly, people with better executive function can switch between tasks more quickly. And it's also things like inhibition. So, and I don't mean inhibition in sort of the traditional sense of inhibition in psychology kind of means how quickly can you, or how, to what extent can you stop yourself from giving an incorrect answer? So they'll do experiments where, you know, the right answer might be A, 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 and then suddenly at some point in the experiment it will switch. And how quickly can you stop yourself from continuing to give the, the old, what was previously the correct answer, but is now an incorrect answer. Um, but executive function is really interesting because it correlates with, you know, intelligence, it correlates with scores on IQ tests, it correlates with kind of success in general life, um, but it also correlates with uh, sporting success, according to some studies anyway. So they did an experiment in Sweden where they did uh, tests of executive function on a bunch of footballers in the top two divisions, and they found actually that there was a correlation between um you know, their scores on executive function tests and also what level they were playing at. So first division players scored better on executive function than second division players, which is really interesting because I don't think people really think of football as something that requires what we would call in traditional intelligence. So I spoke to Vincent Company, for example, for the book. He was kind of saying that he didn't think there was, he didn't think there was a link between sporting intelligence and actual intelligence, right? You know, but actually it kind of, the evidence kind of suggests that maybe there is and that, you know, if you have a good executive function, it just depends how it manifests itself. It could manifest itself in being really good at an IQ test, or it could manifest itself as being able to kind of track multiple objects and, you know, make decisions more quickly and, and make you, making you a better footballer, which is interesting. 
You mentioned before um, anticipation skills, decision making skills. It almost goes without saying that coaches would want to improve those skills in their athletes. Mm. Uh, what are some of the tools and techniques and methods that teams and organisations are using at the moment? So, I think good coaches probably already know some some of this stuff. So it's the things about like, like making maximising the amount of experience that each player gets in an individual training session. So at youth level, for example, we've seen a move away from like 11 aside to, you know, smaller sided games. And one of the, the rationale behind that, one of the rationales behind that is sort of giving each player more touches of the ball in the same amount of time. Um, and you see it, you see it as well with things like, you know, even like the, the bowling machine or like, you know, something like that, like being able to face 100 deliveries an hour in against a bowling machine. Like, rather than facing, you know, one every 30 seconds or whatever. Math doesn't make sense. But you know what I mean. So being able to face, yeah, being able to face more, making training more efficient. And um, so the football nought is a good example of this, actually. So this is uh, something I went to see at Hoffenheim. They also have one at Dortmund. And I think they have a similar thing at Bournemouth, but it's not the same company. But basically, this is a big room, a big square of AstroTurf. And there's uh, all these gates around. It's like a game show. It's the most fun. It's so, so much fun. Uh, it's like a game show, there's gates all around you and um, every so often a big light will go on and then a ball will come out firing out of one of these gates and you have to control it and then pass it through another gate uh, which will light up to kind of show you that it's the target. Um, and it's it, aside from being really fun, it obviously lets you kind of practice controlling and making passes really quickly uh, without needing any teammates around you and without kind of having to... You know, so you can you can receive many more passes than you would in an ordinary training session. So I think I think the, I can't remember what the stat was, but I think it's something like in one hour on the football court you receive as many passes as you would during a week of normal training, which I think is really interesting because um, you're just obviously building up your experience and you're kind of building up your ability to kind of look around peripheral your peripheral vision and see where the target needs to be and all this stuff. Um, but you don't necessarily need like, you know, that's a, that's a million pound machine. You don't necessarily need something like that. You know, you could look at the Rondo that Barcelona use, right? You know, the Rondo is kind of the key to their training session. If you don't know what the Rondo is, it's kind of piggy in the middle, but kind of at an insanely high skill level. So you've got like six or seven players in a circle around one or two in the middle and they've got to just pass it around between them. But I mean, if you, if you watch Barcelona do it on YouTube, some of the things they can do are amazing and it goes on for ages. But that's, that's really good because it just you know, reinforces and speeds up and just gives each player much, much more experience than we get in a traditional, you know, if you just chuck the same eight players into like a, I don't know, like a regular four-a-side scenario, five-a-side scenario, they wouldn't get nearly as many touches of the ball, so they wouldn't learn as quickly, which I think is really interesting. Um, but yeah, there's all sorts of things like that. And then there's like computer programs as well. So uh, one thing that's really important in sport is is the ability to kind of track the movement of your players around you, so multiple object tracking. Uh, and some people are trying to train this using computer programs. So um, at Hoffenheim, for example, they've got a big three, big 180 degree screen. So it's, it's in a room above the football, not actually. So it's a 180 degree screen that's kind of shaped like a semicircle. And you kind of stand in front of it. And then all these kind of, it's, it's like computer generated, all these players kind of move around around you, eight players, and you have to keep track of four of them, which are supposed to be, I guess, your teammates. And you have to kind of keep an eye on all of them for like... It's a bit like, um, you know, on a pub quiz machine where you have like a bonus round and the, 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 the yeah. bonus tile kind of moves around and you have to track it to get your your bonus. Uh-huh. Um, and 
Yeah, and so yeah, so you have it's basically that, but on a much kind of much much higher level. Um, and so that's something that they do with their players. They kind of train them, and it's training their ability to track multiple objects uh, more efficiently because obviously they can do this loads of times. In you know, whereas in, in training they would only really be able to do it in kind of a match situation. Um, there's another program called NeuroTracker, which is the same sort of thing, but with you know just a bit more abstract. It's just kind of tennis balls bouncing around and like a, you, you put 3D goggles on and then you kind of watch the screen and there's all these tennis balls bouncing around in 3D space around the screen um, and you have to again you have to keep track of a few of them and and then at the end you have to point which ones you were supposed to be keeping track of and where they are on screen now um, and you know you can build this up over time um, and you can incorporate other things as well so some people do it you know, while performing other skills. So I went to see um, Aaron Cook, who was a Taekwondo athlete for, previously for Great Britain, now for Moldova, uh, which is a, a story in and of itself. Um, but he uses NeuroTracker to kind of help him, uh, I guess, train his peripheral vision and train his ability to kind of keep track of where people's limbs are, his opponent's limbs might be during a fight and stuff like that. But he does it while also performing other skills so he might do it while doing kicks or while lifting weights or while jogging on the spot and it's kind of just training your ability to track multiple objects while also under physical stress which is another really interesting example of kind of how coaches are using new technology to help athletes get better. It's very interesting to hear you describe those different areas now of course athletes or coaches are not necessarily technology experts mm. Um, are these devices, these different tools, very user-friendly? How are metrics tracked? What do they look like in practice? So NeuroTracker is actually really good. So you just need, all you need is a TV screen and a computer, I think, and obviously to pay the subscription to NeuroTracker, I'm not sure how much that costs. But a lot of these tools are kind of iPad-based and things like that now as well. So like the uh, GSK uh, thing I mentioned earlier about the rugby uh, tracker things, they have a similar thing for American football uh, built by a company called Axon Sports. And they have like an iPad app, so you can kind of, in theory, you can you know give this to all your players and kind of tell them to download the app, and then they can train their brain at home or you know on, on the bus on the way to games or whatever. Um, but yeah, there's all sorts of stuff like that. There's another company um, that does uh, the similar thing for baseball, and again, you know, you can use uh, you can use an app, or you can use a computer to do it. Um, there's a bunch of computer programs. There's one called Intellivision, I think, which again is another computer program. But again, I don't think you necessarily need to buy into this technology per se. I think you just need to be aware of the... If you're aware of the rationale behind it, then you can kind of build those things into your into your training, right? So if you, you know... I think to some extent coaches kind of know this maybe intuitively, but they perhaps don't know the reason behind it. But like if, if you can figure out like what what's important for your sport and then figure out a way to train it more efficiently. I think that's really interesting. So I'll give you an example, right? So um, in that Cristiano Ronaldo experiment, they also did something where they, they put an eye tracker on him and then they got him to kind of take on a defender. Uh, so he, just, he was just trying to keep the ball away from the defender for as long as possible, kind of you know, being Cristiano Ronaldo, it's all obviously step overs, etc. But they put an eye tracker on him while he was doing it. And the interesting thing about it is that Cristiano Ronaldo almost never looks at the ball while he's, while he's dribbling around. You know, he looks at it obviously, you know, quite frequently, but not nearly as much as, a, as an, an amateur athlete would do. Actually, what Cristiano was looking at when he's dribbling up against the defender is he's looking at the movements of the defender's body. He's looking at the defender's hip position. He's looking at shoulders. He's looking at the defender's feet. He's predicting what the defender's going to do based on the defender's body position and then reacting to it before the defender probably even knows what he's about to do. 
Um, which is really interesting. So what the point I'm trying to make is that you can figure out using something like that what where the best athletes in the world look, what the best athletes in the world are looking for, what information they're looking at, and then you can find a way to kind of train your players in collecting that same information or at least making them aware of what they need to look for in order to you know, anticipate better and make the high-speed decisions better. And I don't think that you need technology to do that necessarily. No, right, of course. And taking some of those examples, um, decision-making, anticipation once again, um, is there a peak age range for uh, improving your skills in those areas? Um, are young brains more malleable than older brains, perhaps? Young brains are more malleable than older brains. Uh, there's a concept called neuroplasticity, um, which is basically how... Yeah, how your brain kind of changes over time. So, so yeah, I mean, young, young, there's no getting around the fact that young brains are more malleable than older brains, but I don't think that that's necessarily... That doesn't mean you can't learn new skills, right? It doesn't mean that you can't improve, especially for things like anticipation, because it's, it's um, you know, it's not something that... It's something that experience, you know, it's, it's all about kind of... It's a function of how much experience you've built up over time, right? So I think that... You know, if you're learning a new complicated skill, you know, it's probably easier to learn it. Like a new language is much easier to learn when you're younger. But if you're just trying to build up your well of experience, and I don't think it necessarily matters whether it's, a, whether it's a young brain or an older brain. There's some kind of really like far out stuff around kind of trying to kickstart neuroplasticity using, you know, brain stimulation and stuff like that, which is a bit of science fiction and also probably going to be banned at some point by you know, world anti-doping or whatever, but, but, you know, some people think that you can actually, you know, kickstart neuroplasticity by electrically stimulating areas of the brain and kind of learn new skills as if you were, you know, you know, if, as if you were a kid when you can kind of learn stuff effortlessly, which is really interesting, but again, probably not within the remit of most of your average coach, I don't think, <laughs> to start poking around in their, their, you know, players' brains with electrodes at this point. Um, not advisable, I'd say. Um, but it would certainly be an opportunity there for youth development academies around the world, as well as for senior athletes as well. In terms of what learning, learning new in, skills. In terms of developing their decision making. Yeah. Those anticipation. Yeah, skills. yeah. I think, I think, um, I think the opportunity is probably more there for younger athletes, just because. I think maybe they're more open to it. Obviously, their brains are more malleable, and if you can get the experience in earlier on, then you would have been able to otherwise. And I think it can probably make a big difference, right? Like. You know, someone like, I don't know, like an older player, like someone who's, someone like Frank Lampard probably has all the experience and anticipation and things like that that he, he needs at this point. You know, he's not going to, uh, I, I, the return on investment's not going to be as good, right? Whereas if you are, you know, 12 years old or whatever and you're in an academy and you can suddenly find a way of getting vast amounts of experience of, you know, uh, match situations, whether that's in real life or whether through, you know, technology, um, it's obviously going to make you better. And that's, that's the whole concept behind an academy, right? It's kind of, you know, getting these kids more experienced than they would get if Absolutely. they went to, like, a normal school. You know, that's the whole the whole rationale behind it. Um, yeah. And another area, Anne, which you've explored in depth, is yeah. the concept of flow. Yeah. It's flow with athletes. Uh, can you describe the term flow for us in its many different guises and perhaps even the origins of the term itself? Yeah, so flow is... Um, this idea of kind of a, a sort of super state where you are, you know, it's, it's a state of ultimate performance. Uh, it's a state where you 
kind of lose track of the passage of time. You know, everything seems to slow down. You can kind of, you, you feel like nothing is going to go wrong. Um, and it's really, I think everyone kind of experiences flow to a certain extent, depending on, you know, depending on what they do. So like if I'm, if I'm writing something, uh, sometimes, not always, but sometimes you kind of get into a state where you kind of just, everything kind of, everything flows, right? You know, you kind of, and you look up and suddenly 45 minutes have gone by and you've written like 800 words and you're like, wow, that was amazing. Um, and it happens across all sorts of areas of life. You know, sometimes it's, it could be video gaming or something where you just lose track of time. Anything that's really involving, that's flow. Um, and obviously it's really important to sport as well because you want athletes to be in that kind of state where they kind of feel like they can do no wrong, where they kind of, they're fully focused and they kind of, you know, they have like heightened awareness and they kind of know what's going to happen before it happens. The other interesting thing about flow is that actually there's some evidence to suggest that if you're in a flow state, um, you actually learn faster than if you're not in a flow state. So they, uh, there was a, a study by DARPA, which is the American kind of military research, shadowy American military research group. Um, so they were training snipers and they found that, that snipers in a flow state learnt kind of twice as fast as the snipers who weren't in a flow state, which is really interesting. So I think there's a lot of things that coaches can do to kind of, I guess, try and encourage flow in the way they design their training sessions or the way they kind of interact with their athletes. Um, so flow is actually, it's, it's, as well as being kind of a, a wishy-washy sort of term, as I've just described, it's also a neurological state. So there are certain signs that you're in flow in terms of the way your brain operate so there's uh, a particular pattern of brain waves that goes along with it there is a um there's something called transient hypofrontality um which is so i'm gonna have to go back a bit and explain so basically so uh your brain you you have the area at the front of your brain is called the prefrontal cortex right and it's heavily involved in things like executive function inhibition it's basically it kind of acts as almost like a break on your sort of baser instincts, right? So you, it, if you kind of feel like you want to shout at someone, but you stop yourself, that's your prefrontal cortex kind of stepping in. And, and the, the reason that, that, that teenagers behave like teenagers is because their prefrontal cortex is not as developed as an adult, right? So your, your prefrontal cortex is still developing into your early 20s. So that's why teenagers are more emotional and more prone to kind of act on impulse than adults are. Um, so what happens in in flow is that actually because you are in a state of heightened awareness all your blood and all your glucose and oxygen is flowing to your sort of sensory areas which are at the back of the brain so your prefrontal cortex is kind of not starved but it, there's less blood going there so you kind of you lose that kind of sense of self to a certain extent so you, you don't have this nagging voice anymore kind of questioning you or kind of inhibiting you so you kind of just become yeah uh you become less kind of in your own head, I suppose. Um, and there's a really interesting parallel with kind of choking under pressure. So what happens when athletes choke under pressure is that they um, they have a practice skill that's kind of automatic. And then when they choke, their prefrontal cortex kind of interferes with it. And uh, you know, they start thinking, of, thinking about it too much. Whereas flow is the opposite of that. Your prefrontal cortex is like really, really quiet because all your attention is you know focused in your center areas. You have heightened awareness and that's that's kind of a flow state. Um, and I've forgotten what my original point was now, so I do apologize. Well, not at all. What was the question? <laughs> so uh, what you were dis discussing, I guess, the science behind it, uh, yeah. the origins of the term. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so um, 
so that's it really. So and then there's ways there were there are ways of kind of, I guess, increasing flow. Uh, and I was saying that yeah, flow kind of helps you learn better as well. But there there are kind of a number of different ways of triggering flow. But one of the the most relevant ones for um, for coaches is this idea that flow happens when you're kind of pushing at the edge of your abilities. So you have to have a task where there's clear goals and there's also immediate feedback. So, um, you know, if, if you're not if you're not getting immediate feedback, you're not going to get into. This is why video games are so good at triggering flow as well because you kind of have that immediate kind of response to what you're doing and you can kind of and the target's very clear um but there's the, the sweet spot is what's this sort to be about four percent so the task should be four percent harder than that person's current ability level that's that's supposed to keep them in like a really good state of flow apparently according to research um, so that's the idea so if you can design your training to be four percent harder than that person's ability level which i guess for something like you know long distance running is probably a bit easier than something like something less measurable but that's kind of the idea if you can put someone pit someone against an opponent who's four percent better than them <laughs> then, <laughs> then you're the run for a winner um yeah yeah i mean i wonder how you do that for a ball game for example yeah it is i mean it is tricky i guess you know you can kind of uh i mean four percent is obviously it's not it's not feasible to measure success to that extent in in a, in a ball game but but you know i guess that's the kind of the idea kind of keep people pushing up against the limits of their ability is the kind of idea and that's that's one good way to get into flow state and then when you're in a flow state you learn quicker uh, and also, there's also more creativity as well because you're not inhibiting your kind of creative impulse because you because of transient hyperfrontality because your prefrontal cortex isn't interfering as much as it would normally be and how important is context in in that scenario i mean i'm guessing it's uh, easier to do it in training than it would be to do in a game scenario or a race for example yeah i don't i guess so i think I think um, it depends what's at stake. I think some one of the easiest places, one of the one of the places where flow shows up the most is actually kind of extreme sports, uh, things like base jumping and you know uh, that kind of thing where your life depends on it. So actually, maybe if maybe if more's at stake, it's easier. But then on the other hand, obviously if there's pressure and you know we talked about choking, choking under pressure briefly, but that's that's something that's really important as well but I think if you can design your life or design your sessions training sessions in a way that you kind of maximize maximize flow then I think that kind of kind of help there's little fixes you can make for example so like in like a work environment right like open plan offices are terrible for flow because there's so many distractions everywhere you know your phone is ringing there's people next to you coming over for a chat etc etc you want to kind of block all that stuff out and I think the same can apply for, for, for a training session right you want to minimize distractions uh, you know, whatever, in, in whatever whatever way you can. And you want to just make sure that people are just focused on that one thing and that they get clear feedback on whether they're doing it well or not and that there's a clear goal in mind, which is, you know, I think something that can be considered, something that can be worked in if you, you, know, if you give it a bit of thought, I think. You've delved into the science of it there and perhaps even offered some tips for coaches who might want to try and help their athletes get into the mm-hmm. flow that's... Just in your in your work and in your studies and when you were preparing the book, uh, you obviously spoke to a number of elite athletes. How did they describe being in the flow to you? Yeah, so they, they kind of... I mean, I spoke to Lewis Hamilton uh, about it. I don't, they all kind of say similar things. It's, they call, You know, there's, there's cliches about being in the zone and things like that, but they kind of say that they feel like they can do no wrong. You know, time seems to slow down. They feel as if everything is 
going perfectly well. You know, they feel uh, there's a the Ayrton Senna talks about a lap that he did in qualifying at Monaco, and you know, he just talks about sort of this amazing feeling of sort of calmness and sort of you know serenity, which is really interesting, I think, because it's obviously quite a frantic activity driving an F1 car. And if you look at the, the movements of his his limbs, you know, he's like all over the place, you know, changing gear, etc. You know, on the brakes, on the on the throttle, but in his head, it's just peace. You know, which I think is really interesting. If you reflect on some of the things we've discussed here today, mm. what do you think are some of the key takeaways that coaches can can glean from this? Well, I think I think there's a few. I think the first thing is obviously that, that the brain is hugely important, right? And it is trainable. So I don't think that, and I kind of I guess it kind of depends what level as well, what level you're operating at. But I think that talent is just a function of how much experience someone's had and how targeted that experience has been in that particular skill. So, you know, a lack of talent is not a reason to give up on someone, I don't think. Uh, I think talent can be trained. And if you can find ways of, A, figuring out what skills, what, what cognitive skills are important for your sport, what the best athletes in the world do, uh, you know, in order to anticipate and make decisions better, then you can decide, you can d- devise ways of training those skills, you know, of providing the way, the experience more quickly. So, you know, there's, you know, and, and that would differ from sport to sport. So I can't really give like an overarching answer as to this is what you need to do, uh, apart from buy the book, obviously. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, you know, it will differ. So, you know, in golf, uh, it might be about uh, focusing on the, the hole for longer before you putt that's something called the quiet eye which is this really interesting phenomenon I mean, you know, in, in football it might be about looking at a player's hips in cricket it might be looking about a player's shoulder all these different things in something like American football it might be about you know looking at the position of a certain player on the opponent's team if you're a quarterback and, and all, all these things that you need to like know what to look for but if you can figure out what to look for and figure out what experience is important then you can figure out a way of you know, kind of maximising that experience using cleverly designed training sessions, using new technology and, you know, using, if you want to kind of really push the boundaries, using things like brain stimulation or kind of, you know, cognitive sort of neuroscience to, you know, actually impact on the sort of biology and chemistry of the brain as well. But I think probably the first two are a bit more more viable at this point. Yeah. You also wanted to emphasise the point, right, that it need not be expensive. You don't necessarily have to throw millions of pounds no. at No, exactly. Tools. Yeah, like, you know, there's uh, Bill Shankly, right, for Liverpool in the 1970s, devised a really, really good way of training people's uh, passing ability more quickly. And let Liverpool side, 70s and 80s, were kind of renowned for their sort of short passing ability in, in an era where pitches were awful and, you know, tackles were flying in, but they were still kind of passing around and, and you know, doing it very well. But all he did was just set up bounce balls at the sides of the pitch uh, on a small pitch and so the ball would never go out of play so instead of you know spending half the training session chasing after the ball to get, get it back when someone kicks it out you know suddenly the ball's in play for the whole hour people are getting much more experience in the same amount of time and you know when the ball bounces back it's still immediately in play so you kind of you just maximize the experience by designing cleverly designing a training session that's all uh yeah so it doesn't need to be it doesn't need to be expensive. It doesn't even need to be anything more than, you know, a smaller pitch or a smaller football, right? You know, Petr Cech, right, trains, uses something called overload training. So he will practice uh, catching. He'll set up a, there's a video of it on YouTube, actually, you should check it out. He's, he'll set up a ping pong ball firing machine and he'll set it up and it will fire 
you know, little table tennis balls at him and he'll have to catch them. And that's a way of, for him of kind of training his brain more efficiently, improving his sort of reflexes. And then when it comes to a football match where the ball's like, you know, 50 times bigger, it must be easy for him because you know, he's used to kind of reacting to these tiny little, you know, tiny little ping pong balls. So, you know, you don't need to chuck millions of pounds at it. And even some of the, you know, some of the, uh, the computer-based tools are, you know, we're looking at 50 to 100 pounds or something like that for, for subscriptions to these things. So if you do have some money to chuck at it, you can do, but even that, I don't think you need to. But it seems like there's an opportunity here for teams and coaches that can, uh, they can get on board with this and actually improve the performance of their charges. Yeah, I, I, what, I said, what I said in the book, uh, probably, uh, you know, what I said in the book was kind of, you know, nutrition was one revolution, sports psychology is maybe the current revolution, and I think neuroscience is the next revolution. And I think that it has as much potential as any of them, if not more, because at the heart, success in sport is more about high-speed decision-making. It's more about the brain than it is about the body. I think especially in sports such as football, such as cricket, maybe less so in sprinting or, you know, marathon running. But I think, at, you know, in, in team sports, success is more about the brain than it is about the body. So a, a revolution in neuroscience is potentially a game changer for coaches, for players, even for fans and for teams. You know, it's, it's huge. And I think that might be a nice place to leave it. Amit Kapwala, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you.